Welcome to QD Clinic ACR 2022. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. This week, QD Clinics will be focused on issues and abstracts presented at ACR 22. We'll use a case to describe the relevance of that abstract. What is he talking about? Let me show you an example. A case comes in to see me. This is a few months ago. 43 years old woman, um, 12 weeks of pain in her hands and her feet. She points to her big knuckles and middle knuckles and also known as MCPs and PIPs and to her MTPs on her feet, the balls of her feet. Says it's been aching there kind of every day. She has 30 minutes of morning stiffness. She goes to her primary care doctor, orders a bunch of labs. Everything's normal. CBC, chem profile, sed rate, CRP. But her rheumatoid factor is positive at 242. Healthy and high. Um, the question is, do you treat it? Well, the pre-CP doesn't know. He gives her a prescription for meloxicam, 15 milligrams a day, and says if your symptoms don't go away in a few weeks, then go see the rheumatologist. She makes the appointment. A few weeks later, she comes in to see me because she's still having pain in the same spots. It's really not changing. On my exam, she has eight tender joints in her MCPs and PIPs. One MTP on the left, the second joint, the second uh, MTP2, is tender, but also maybe a little full. It's hard to tell in the feet if they're if those joints are swollen or not. So does she have synovitis? Um, I could have tested if I had an ultrasound. Didn't have an ultrasound. Um, I'm not going to order an MRI. This is still early in the game here. Um, she only has 12 weeks of symptoms. But, you know, 12 weeks is the dividing line on chronicity that doesn't go away. Uh, so what are you going to do? I did order some more labs, including CCP and a repeat uh, of her acute phase reactants to see if anything's changed. And then I'm going to treat her because she's having symptoms. Question is, what do you treat her with? One option would be a big shot of IM steroids followed by a steroid taper. Second, a course of hydroxychloroquine. It's safe. It's effective. It works in my other patients. Why not methotrexate? Why not abatacid, for which there's data on? Well, what we did wasn't as important as what we learned from the study that was going to be presented uh, at ACR. It's a stop RA study. It's going to be presented next uh, Sunday, the 13th. This is abstract 1604 from Kevin Dean and colleagues at the University of Colorado, Denver. Um, this study was a, it's actually an interim analysis. The study was halted for futility. This was a one of those trials, an intervention trial of at-risk individuals, preclinical RA patients, uh, and you give them an intervention or placebo. In this case, the intervention was hydroxychloroquine in standard doses versus placebo for 12 months. Then therapy was halted. The patients were followed for another 24 months. To be in the study, the patients had to be CC positive, uh, had to have uh, arthralgias that were chronic, I guess, uh, didn't say how long, maybe six weeks or more, uh, and no evidence of swelling or inflammatory arthritis, and certainly not meeting criteria for RA. Uh, and other diagnoses would have been excluded. The primary endpoint here was developing RA or developing two or more swollen joints. 142 patients were enrolled, half went on placebo, half went on, on hydroxychloroquine, and at the end of the study, guess what? No difference in uh, the percentage of patients who developed RA. A total of 41 patients, about 35% in each group, developed RA, and uh, this is a negative trial, meaning that drug, which you think is safe and sometimes usually effective, especially in mild arthritis, 
doesn't seem to be good at preventing the development of RA. Now, this is an interim, interim analysis. There's going to be longer-term polyp. You have to go to the presentation on Sunday, the, um, November 13th, abstract 1604, to hear more about this data and any other new findings that they're going to reveal to us. Uh, but at this point, hydroxychloroquine would not have been a good choice in my patient who has seropositive and had arthralgias. Tune in for more QD Clinics coming to you from ACR22. Take care. This is QD Clinic from ACR22. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. In this series, we're going to feature some important abstracts from ACR 2022 being held in Philadelphia. Today, I'm going to talk to you about a case I saw about a year ago. A 17-year-old Hispanic male presents with fever and rash. He has temps up to 104. He has a rash that comes and goes. He has chest pain. He has lost weight recently. He has no appetite. He has a few tender and swollen joints. On further investigation, he is found to have splenomegaly and hepatomegaly, mild elevation of his LFTs, a white count of 64,000. That's right, 64,000 with a left shift. Chest x-ray shows that he has pleural effusions bilaterally. Um, and on EKG, there's evidence of myocarditis. What would you do to treat this man? Now, it's not hard. This is a patient who clearly has uh, systemic JIA or Stills disease. This patient is really sick. In fact, he went right into the ICU. It's not hard to imagine that you would go ahead and pull out all the stops and give him all your big guns. So he's going to get, you know, big doses of IV steroids. But what do you use as your disease modifying drug? Do you go straight to biologics? Do you use a DMARD like methotrexate or azathioprine? Uh, I'll point you to the result. First off, I'll point you to the ACR guidelines from this year that says it is okay to use biologics, IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitors as first-line therapy in active systemic JIA. And that's supported by this abstract, a late-breaking abstract number 12, or L12. It's presented by Erkins and colleagues. It's going to be presented uh, on, with the late-breaking abstracts on Sunday uh, at this year's ACR. The title of their presentation was First-Line Recombinant IL-1 Receptor Antagonist Therapy, meaning anakinra, in new-onset systemic JIA. This was a multi-center, multinational study where they collected patients who had new-onset JIA. Um, there were 65 in all. They were half male. The average age was seven years, and the age ranged from um, eight months to almost 16 years of age. Uh, as far as first-line therapy, of the 65, 60 of them were given anakinra as first-line therapy, meaning over a DMARD. Five others received corticosteroids first, but then soon thereafter got um, anakinra. You can use anakinra with corticosteroids, obviously. The outcome here was pretty impressive. 70 plus percent of patients were had a complete response, meaning that they were off steroids and had clinically active disease within six months. That was maintained. That same number was maintained for 12 months. When they did a total of two years of follow-up, they basically showed that um, 20% developed 
macrophage activation syndrome. And that would have been during when they were most active. It's quite unusual to be clinically inactive and then, boom, have MAS. Um, the other interesting thing that they found in their report was uh, at least 62% had eosinophilia, which was surprising. One of the purposes behind their doing this study was to look for this association of a certain genotype with this rare um, interstitial lung disease or lung disease that in many, by many people is thought to be a, a, a sort of a, a dress syndrome, a sort of systemic allergic reaction, usually in people on biologics. And so they, as part of their, stu their study, they did genotyping. And basically they showed that genotyping, looking for HLA-DR beta-1.1501, um, which was the highest association, um, was not really seen with any good frequency. I think that they found that 26% actually had this allele uh, and, and a few other alleles were found, but they really didn't predict outcome or toxicity. Only one of the 17 patients who had this particular haplotype of, HLA, again, HLA-DR beta-1-1501 developed systemic JIA-ILD in the two years of follow-up, making it not that predictive. So while this study didn't reveal what they had hoped to reveal, which is the use of the genotyping in, in finding at-risk individuals for lung disease, which is very, very rare, they did show that first-line therapy with anakinra is prudent and wise in sick patients with systemic JIA. Hope you enjoyed this report. Tune in for more QD Clinics from ACR22. This is QD Clinic, ACR22. Hi, I'm Jack Cushwood, room now. QD Clinic this week has cases germane to research being presented at ACR 2022 starting this Saturday. Today's case is inflammatory myositis. And I could fill in the blanks here with age and presentation differences, but I'm going to talk about generally about a myositis patient. And specifically, I'm going to raise the issue, what kind of patient with inflammatory myositis is someone who you think needs a malignancy workup? You know it's a test question, right? It's always been there. What patients with inflammatory myositis are more likely to have a malignancy, either before, during, or after the diagnosis of myositis? Again, it's a moving target, and the research hasn't been all that strong. I think for the purpose of the test question, for me, the answer always was male over 50, dermatomyositis, etc. And now it's evolved, and in more recent years, there are a lot more people who are being a lot more proactive about screening for malignancy. But if a lot of your patients are over the age of 50, is this really a true co-association? The research says yes, it is. But... Again, what's going to guide you? So, again, the case that's in your head, is it young or old? Is it male or female? Is it polymyositis, dermatomyositis, overlap myositis, juvenile dermatomyositis, inclusion body myositis? And then, God forbid, how many serologic tests must you order to make sure that you know that the risk has been heightened? Well, these are kind of complex questions, and the good news is it's going to be presented at ACR on Saturday, November the 12th. Um, Oldroyd and colleagues representing the International Myositis Assessment and Clinical Studies Group 
has actually gone through the process of coming up with um, 2022 cancer screening recommendations for patients with idiopathic inflammatory arthritis. I think it's going to be a great presentation. I think you should look for it. I'm going to be there. Uh, again, this is a group of international um, myositis mavens from 22 countries who got together, went through a Delphi method to identify what the most important questions are, and then they, as a group, scored it. So some of this is evidence, some of this is expert opinion. They came up with 18 recommendations, uh, of whom, I what did they say, that 15 of them were strong and uh, three of them were conditional. Uh, and what's unique about this particular approach that they took is they want you, based on patient's clinical and serologic um, status, to characterize the patient as either being uh, low risk or high risk. And that's sort of important. What they say in their um, in the abstract, and it will be interesting to see if they change their presentation, is that everybody should get sort of basic stuff, what I would call health maintenance stuff, labs, appropriate x-rays and interventions that are appropriate for that person's age, and health maintenance. Also, you should probably be looking at whatever the guidelines are in your country for someone who you're considering that might have a cancer. But what they do say that helps you, the clinician, is that you don't necessarily need a screening evaluation for patients with JDM, juvenile idiopathic inflammatory myositis or juvenile dermatomyositis, or inclusion body myositis patients. That's kind of good. Um, they say that all patients should have serologic studies, and I find this a bit surprising. That includes a, a myositis-specific autoantibody panel. That's like Joe1, PL7, MI2, all those. And then add to that another panel that's the myositis-associated antibodies, and that would include MDA5, NXP2, uh, TIF1, gamma. And I find that a little surprising um, to do that on all patients with myositis. We'll see. Again, these are recommendations. These have not yet been proven to be truly cost-effective and applicable to on a population level. That's one of my concerns about guidelines like this. Nonetheless, they're smart about saying high risk versus low risk. For instance, low risk are patients who have um, Joe-1 and antisynthetase antibodies, overlap syndromes, Raynaud's, ILD features, right? On the other hand, they point out that they felt that high risk were patients with dermatomyositis and those who had specific antibodies associated with cancer like TIF1-gamma or NXP2, those with an older onset over age of 40, those who have activity despite therapy, dysphagia, and skin necrosis. And then there's intermediate things too that you're going to hear at their presentation on Saturday, November 12th. This is, by the way, this is abstract number 002. I think that means it's a plenary session. Uh, it is, actually is a plenary session um, 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 presentation on the first day of the meeting. Once you have identified whether the patient has um, high, intermediate, or low risk, then you can you know gauge your evaluation. And I think they're going to go into that. For instance, high risk screening is going to be appropriate for age. I mean, for sex. So um, while you might do CT scans in males and males and females, women might be more apt to have cervical screening, pelvic ultrasound, mammograms. Men might need a PSA. Everyone should have considerations of CA125 and fecal occult blood assessments. So really interesting. Helps guidelines. It'd be interesting to see how this performs when put to the test. Uh, I want you to know that Room Now is going to have extensive 
coverage of ACR 2022 from Philadelphia. I'm going to be there. We have 18 faculty and about 10 KOLs who will be reporting. You know, people like Artie Kavanaugh, Michelle Petrie, Len Calabrese, uh, Peter Nash, uh, Leanne Ginsler, et cetera. And then our, our usual faculty who you who you know are just great. Um, what you need to know is that you can consume this meeting real time, that you can stay up to date on things that happen every day. One, we're going to present to you and send to you twice, day, twice a day emails that will tell you the highlights of the meeting from that morning and that evening. You might want to click on that. Second, um, you might want to look for a few things that I think are really about up being up to date. One would be our daily recaps every day, 5 p.m., starting Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. The Room Now faculty is going to get together and say, what was your favorite stuff from today? And they're going to discuss it. 15-minute video and 15-minute podcast. Next, there's going to be topic panels. Um, specific topics are going to be discussed starting Sunday at 7 p.m. And then also on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Again, these are, these are going to be by invite for you rheumatologists. Everybody else can watch it on the Room Now website or on our YouTube channel or on Twitter. These are going to be out there at 7 p.m. And we're going to have topic panels on rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, uh, psoriatic arthritis, and ankylosing spondylitis. And the meeting's going to end up on Thursday with Rheumatology Roundup, Artie Kavanaugh, and myself. Again, this is how you can get real-time information from what's happening at ACR. We're excited. We hope you are, too. Take care. This is QD Clinic, ACR 2022. Today, we're going to discuss a case and refer it to an abstract at the meeting. The case is a gentleman I saw, oh, probably about three or four months ago, 61, white, comes in, first-time evaluation, um, previously self-managed, saw his PCP, sent to me. He's got pain in his, and swelling in his hands. When you ask him his story, it's about six, seven years. It's mainly in both hands. It's mainly DIPs, some PIPs, but mainly the DIPs. Um, and again, nothing seems to help. He's tried over-the-counter stuff. His doctor gave him a course of steroids. That didn't really make a big difference. He's being referred to me for rheumatoid or methotrexate or something like that. So again, it's predominantly DIP disease. It looks like OA, and of course I get x-rays. Well, first off, I ask him, you know, associated diseases, comorbidities, other medicines, really nothing. He has no nail changes, no psoriasis, um, and this has been chronic uh, for some time. He says that he does get redness and some swelling. He says that his stiffness is usually 30 to 60 minutes every day. Um, and that really nothing gives him relief. He's currently taking naproxen over the counter. So we do laboratory tests on him. They're all normal, chem panel, CBC. His sed rate's 31. His CRP was normal. His serologies are negative. His uric acid's normal. X-rays show, yeah, OA, but really it shows erosive OA. You know, that seagull wing, central erosions, reactive bone on the side, pretty typical going on in uh, several of the DIPs and one of the PIPs. So this man has erosive OA. Oh my goodness, what do we treat him with? I don't know about you, but really nothing works. I know you all have your little 
trick, your little game, but uh, you know the data is pretty clear. DMARDs don't work. And that includes methotrexate, that includes hydroxychloroquine. We Every year we get a few new studies that re- recreate the past showing how bad they are. Oh, by the way, biologics don't work. IL-1 inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, IL-6 inhibitors, almost everything's been tried and nothing works in inflammatory erosive OA. I'm talking OA that's got erosive changes in it and intermittent inflammation, sometimes overt inflammation. You know, and again, uh, what's the best thing you can do? Previous to this report I'm going to discuss, my best regimen was a little bit of low-dose prednisone, 3 to 5 milligrams with hydroxy, with uh, uh, not hydroxychloroquine, sorry, with acetaminophen, long-acting acetaminophen, up to 3,000 milligrams a day, and then, you know, compressive taping uh, using Coban, uh, that stretch tape. Um, that seems to work sort of, sort of as a immobilization. Those joints are hard to inject. I don't inject them. Again, it's we just don't have anything that works. Well, maybe we do have something now. And this is going to be presented when? On um, Monday, the last day of the meeting, November 14th. Abstract number L05. And this is from uh, Witoke and colleagues. The effect of denosumab on structure modification in erosive hand OA. Are you kidding me? Abisphosphonate. I thought this was exciting because way back, my goodness, going back into, I think, the late 90s, we were involved in a protocol looking at residronate um, as a potential agent to retard the erosions, uh, retard the development of erosions in RA patients. Um, and it turns out that that did not work. I don't think it was really well studied, but nonetheless, it didn't work. Here, this is a placebo versus um, standard dose denosumab in 100 patients with erosive OA. The primary outcome was x-rays, the Ghent University score, the GUS score, basically. And they were looking at that. The primary endpoint was, 24, was uh, six months, and they looked at it at one year. Uh, and they also looked at a uh, development of new erosive joints over time. And guess what? Yeah, denosumab, significantly less erosive progression, significantly fewer new erosive joints at both 24 and 48 weeks. This is kind of exciting because we don't have a disease-modifying agent for osteoarthritis, a D-mode and would this now qualify? I think it would. However, this is just a 100-patient single-center study. It'll be really interesting to see how this pans out over time. It'll be interesting to see, again, what were the patient characteristics? We don't know that. We're going to have to look, go to the presentation on, um, uh, what did I say? It was Sunday? Uh, Monday, the, the uh, uh, on the 14th, and see really what the patients were like. Maybe, are these really RA? They called, oh, you know, erosive OA. We need to look at the data, right? So, um, again, you can follow ACR. Room Now has been going to have a gargantuan effort. I really, uh, I focused real hard this year on real-time coverage. You can get podcasts the same day of the meeting. You have those daily recaps. I want to point you to the topic uh, panel discussions. We're going to have a topic panel discussion on RA, 
on Lupus, on PSA, on AS, on four nights, 7 p.m. If you're a rheumatologist, you're going to get the webinar invite and you can watch it on Zoom and ask your questions there. If you're not going to get the invite, you can watch us on our website, on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, our YouTube channel, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, starting Sunday night, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then the last night, that same slot's going to be reserved for uh, Artie Kevin Kevin and I doing the rheumatology roundup, something we've been doing for almost 20 years. Uh, We have fun. We think you'll have fun. Tune in for real-time coverage at ACR in the next few days. This is QD Clinic, ACR 22. Hope you've enjoyed this series leading up to ACR 22. Today's case is a 28-year-old woman who has rheumatoid arthritis and she's pregnant. She was doing very well on a TNF inhibitor, um, taking rarely intermittent non-steroidals or acetaminophen for pain, um, conceived and then stopped her TNF inhibitor. And she's now into her second trimester and she's not doing well. Um, And it's not pregnancy-related pains and back pain and that sort of thing. This is actually inflammatory arthritis, which has come back off the TNF inhibitor. Of course, this is her first pregnancy. She's not wanting to take any medicine. And really, what's your decision at this point? Your decision is to put her on steroids, manage her with non-steroidals, give her useless acetaminophen in this situation, or put her back on the TNF inhibitor, which was working. So what would you do? Well, I'm going to point you to data from uh, ACR 22. This is going to be presented on Sunday the 13th, abstract 0955 from Sabrina Hamrun and colleagues. And they talk about their experience. This is a French cohort of RA patients who get pregnant and they follow them longitudinally. The title of the abstract is Unfavorable Pregnancy Outcomes is Significantly Associated with Corticosteroid Exposure During Pregnancy in Women with RA. The results of a prospective GR2 cohort study. So this is a group of French investigators who started this GR2 registry in 2015. They collected their data up to 2021, uh, and they enrolled women who wanted to get pregnant or were pregnant. They uh, all, all in all, they had I think almost 150 uh, patients. Not all of them were enrolled. I think they had data on almost 100 that they could analyze uh, over time. And um, about half the patients were exposed to steroids, half or 45% exposed to biologics, a few people exposed to NSAIDs during the study. And what were the outcomes? Well, in general, the outcomes were very good, not over 90% live births. So, but that sort of belies the truth, does it not? Because hidden amongst that, you know, is, you know, 10, 15% who had C-sections, very few miscarriages in this study. Usually it's 10, you see 10 to 15%. There was much less in this study. Again, they did very well. 50, uh, of the 90% live births, 50, 60% had favorable outcomes and the others, like 30, 35% had unfavorable outcomes. 
when they looked at the the features that were associated with unfavorable outcomes, that would include premature delivery or small for gestational age or uh, miscarriage or what, what these sort of things. Um, what they saw was, oh, and by the way, you know, not everybody with RA goes into remission during pregnancy. In this study, 22% had high disease activity during the pregnancy, like our patient who she's not doing well. I, she's pretty close to high disease activity by DAS score or CDICE score. What were the things associated with unfavorable outcomes? Being nulliparous, which is a, a, what my patient is, uh, being older, that's not her, and corticosteroid exposure. I want to make the point that multiple studies show that patients who receive corticosteroids in pregnancy don't do very well. Now, that's probably because they have high disease activity. It's probably more disease activity, and the corticosteroids are sort of the surrogate marker for high disease activity, uh, and they just don't do well. But again, if steroids were really effective, that would turn that high disease activity around to low disease activity, and they do well. Who does well during pregnancy? Patients who actually continued on TNF inhibitor as opposed to those who are stopped. Now, that's not part of this study, but other studies have shown that. In this study, when you're exposed to steroids, it wasn't such a good idea. So my suggestion based on this data and other reports is don't be in such a haste to get them off the TNF inhibitors. They're safe during, the preg- during pregnancy. Um, the best outcomes are seen in those individuals um, and far better than the outcomes of patients treated with anything else. Think about it. Think about following room now uh, and our coverage of the meeting. Again, it's going to be great real time. Um, Lots of tweets, lots of great articles on the website, podcasts and emails every day, videos every day, daily recaps, topic panels, and end at the end of the week and Thursday with Rheumatology Roundup. Follow us on room now for great coverage of ACR 22. Enjoy it.